Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ was proclaimed king on Palm Sunday, but not the sort of king that most people were expecting. And Jesus demonstrated that the path to glory was the way of the cross. Let us pray. A prayer. Our first reading this evening looks at Palm Sunday, as told by Matthew, chapter 21, starting at verse 7, which can be found on page 988 of the Pew Bibles. That's page 988. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me begin with a couple of quotations. The first, happiness is the meaning and purpose of life the whole end of human existence. That's Aristotle. The second, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and independent, that from that equal creation they derive rights inherent and inalienable, among which are the preservation of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson, the American Declaration of Independence. It's a phrase exactly repeated in the Constitution of Japan and in the Vietnamese Declaration of Independence. Happiness, the pursuit of happiness. It is stitched into the legal rights of humanity the world over. And that is, I want to suggest this evening, because it is stitched into the human heart. It is stitched into your heart and mine. And this evening, I want to invite you to come with me on a journey, on a Palm Sunday journey, on an Easter journey, on a Jesus journey, a journey in the pursuit of happiness. My text for all three uh, mini-talks, the homilies this evening, is Philippians 2. You'll see it in the box on your sheets there. We'll be looking at that every 
one of the homilies. And in it, we find Jesus' very surprising route to happiness. And I think that we'll find our own. First of all, come with me to see Jesus' humility, Christ's humility, and our self-esteem culture. Jesus being in very nature God. Well, here is eye-watering privilege. The word in very nature here in the Greek has the sense of total and complete identity. In other words, there was nothing about Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, which was not, which is not fully divine. He was and he is utterly equal with God the Father. He was and he is utterly equal with God the Holy Spirit in every way. He is and was the maker and sustainer of the universe and everything in it, you and me included. And he had at that time pleasures forevermore at God's right hand to enjoy. What I am about to say has no hint of exaggeration about it when I say that Christ had it all. Christ had it all. As we heard in the first piece of beautiful Mozart music, thank you, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. That can be attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something literally to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Well, if what we saw before was eye-watering privilege, here is eye-watering humility. In Jesus Christ, God makes space in his person to accommodate full humanity. The infinite God becomes finite. The one who was spirit becomes flesh. The one who created health can now catch a cold. The one who could not be seen now has a hand which can be shaken and a photograph which can be taken. The one who knew the number of hairs on everyone's head now has a head of hair himself. God in the person of Jesus Christ could be given a donkey and cheered on in a dusty Jerusalem street on hot Palm Sunday. This is Christ's humility as he becomes one of us. Like a move in cosmic snakes and ladders, he falls down and down and down from divinity to humanity. But did you notice that Christ at no point is Christ a victim or a passenger in any of this? At every point, he chose the path himself. He is both the subject and the object of the actions. He made himself nothing. Amazon and eBay tell us that the fad became a craze in late 2014. In that period, their UK sales for this 
rose a staggering 301%. During that November and December, eBay sold two of these every minute, receiving 28,000 searches for these in December alone. The selfie stick, of course. It's a useful tool, no doubt, hence the demand for them. But I suggest that it is symptomatic of a worrying cultural narrative which you and I find ourselves deep in right now. We, we, we might call it the culture of self-esteem. In 1890, William James's book, The Principles of Psychology, was published. He was the first person to coin that now familiar phrase, self-esteem, 1890. The psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud was all too happy to take on the baton through the 20th century with his ego and his id and his ideas of the roots of negative human attitudes, which he saw as being rooted in guilt. And together, they had laid the foundations for our selfie culture, whereby we are called to discover who we are, why? Presumably so that we can believe in ourselves, why? Presumably so that we can learn to love ourselves. If we're feeling down this evening, the solution, according to selfie culture, is to make ourselves more central. Self-admiration has become the medicine of our age. On this Palm Sunday, may I say how grateful I am that Jesus Christ didn't buy into self-esteem or selfie culture. He used his privilege literally not for his own advantage. But as we shall see in time, he used it for ours. To teach us that the need to love ourselves is redundant. Because God has got there first. And he's done it best. He loved us. That if it's esteem that we're after this evening, can I say that we are highly esteemed in his eyes? That he had no desire, as it were, to be in the photo, let alone to take it himself, of himself. He didn't make himself central. He made himself nothing. So much so that by the time we get to verse 7 in Philippians 2, Jesus Christ's divinity has become so shrouded in his humility that it's almost impossible to spot. His divinity wrapped in human likeness. Just a carpenter's son from a poor family in Nazareth. Divinity wrapped in the nature of a servant, the servant king, the foot washer, the person we would have walked past in a street with no second look. The 16th century theologian and reformer Martin Luther called Christ in this passage the divine incognito. He was saying that God the Son chose so much to be humbled as he went down and down and down in his incarnation that it was almost as if his divinity became impossible to spot. And so at the beginning of this journey this evening, I hope you will join with me and with the Palm Sunday crowds in singing the only words which seem to me to be appropriate. Hosanna, Hosanna, 
roughly equivalent to hooray. Hooray. Hooray for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to sing Hosanna. You are worthy of all our praises. Let's stand and sing. If you want to, you can find the next reading on page 1023. And it's Mark chapter 15, beginning from verse 33. The crucifixion as recorded by Mark. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. This is the word of the Lord. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ continues his tumble down and down and down until now he stoops as low as any human being can go. He dies. The immortal God dying, the eternal God ending, the all-powerful God surrendering. And you and I miss the point if we're struck only by the fact of his death, which is remarkable enough, is it not? It is the means of his death which is emphasized here even death on a cross. A means of execution reserved by the Romans for only the worst of criminals. The Old Testament says that anyone killed that way is cursed, and cursed by God. In other words, here Jesus is not only excluded from the land of the living in his death, but he is excluded from the respectable, blessed in-crowd in his crucifixion. Welcome to Good Friday. I wonder, are you familiar with the difference between shame cultures and guilt cultures? In a guilt culture, we know that we are good or bad by what our consciences feel like. In a shame culture... 
We know we're good or bad by what our community says about us, whether it excludes us or honors us. In a guilt culture, people feel they do bad things. In a shame culture, social exclusion makes people feel that they are bad. Now, until recently, most people would have said that in the UK, in the West as a whole, we live in a relativistic culture where there is no such thing as absolute right or wrong. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and all of that. But things are changing, it's widely recognized. The omnipresence of social media is creating a new kind, never seen before, a new kind of shame culture. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and all the rest of them, they give huge desire in the user to be embraced and celebrated by the in-crowd. Also, equally huge dread at being excluded by the community. And whether or not we use those platforms will be susceptible to this because it is a human condition. It leads to the fear of saying the wrong thing. Will it be un-PC? It leads to a culture of oversensitivity and overreaction. To be unpopular is to be wrong. That is the new absolute of our age. To be excluded is the worst fate imaginable. Now, there is much that is damaging about our in-crowd culture. I'm sure we're all aware of that. But its emphasis on inclusion and exclusion stands us in very good stead when it comes to Good Friday. For here we see Christ's exclusion. Will you come with me in your imagination? Jesus has been nailed to the cross. He is being crucified. It's 12 noon, the height of day, and suddenly, as happened here a moment ago, the lights go out. The star, which is our sun, ceases to warm the earth and illumine the earth. We suddenly can't see our hand in front of our face. It is thick. It is thick, thick, thick darkness. And in the Bible, darkness is symbolic of God's searing anger, his wrath. And it's fascinating to ask the question, who then is God the Father angry at at this moment in time as his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is being killed. Who is he angry at? And we have such a wide selection of people available to choose. Is he angry with the soldiers who'd whipped Jesus, taunted Jesus, and nailed Jesus to those wooden beams? Is he angry with the mocking crowd? Is he angry with the insulting criminal next to Jesus on the cross? Is he angry with all of the above? But the shock, the shock, and this is the shock that is at the heart of the good of Good Friday, the shock is this, is that God the Father was supremely angry at that moment in time with God the Son. 
with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've heard it twice already this evening. First of all, in our reading. Second of all, in that beautiful rendition from Gemma just now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? As Jesus dies on the cross, God the Father is furious with God the Son. Why? Because at that moment in time, Jesus took all of our self in the center, God at the margins, attitude, onto himself. Our sin was put onto him. As if a great big cosmic dumper truck had poured all of my sin, all of your sin, all of humanity's sin onto him. So that in that moment, it was as if Jesus Christ, the righteous one, had become the world's smarmiest liar, most self-obsessed celebrity, seediest luster, and most ambitious coveter. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, had become sin for us so that we could be forgiven. He took our sin, and with it he took sin's punishment. He died and gave us his perfect record of righteousness so that we could know God, his Father, as God, our Father, so that we could call him Daddy. And may I say, grateful is too weak a word to describe how I feel about that. That he would choose exclusion so that I would be included. That he makes himself nothing so that I would be something in the Father's eyes. That is amazing. That is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Can I say that is what makes the adjective good a liturgical understatement when we come to Good Friday? Should it not be Amazing Friday? As will be sung in just a minute of Jesus, your sinless soul's oppression was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but yours the deadly pain. I bow my head, my Savior, for I deserve your place. O oh, grant to me your favor and heal me by your grace. Day three, the resurrection, as told by John chapter 20, beginning at verse 10. This can be found on page 1089, 1089 of your pew Bibles. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. 
Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. You can find the final reading on page 1092. And it's in Acts chapter 1 from verse 9. Ascension Day, as told by Luke in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. I'm so glad that the choir took us to the maximum volume. God has gone up. You know, in a proper sense, Jesus Christ has always been exalted. At no point under all of the layers of humility and humiliation of his incarnation and crucifixion did he ever cease to be God. Not even in his death did he lose a fragment of his divinity. But God the Father, at this stage in Philippians 2, gives Jesus Christ, God the Son, the exaltation of recognition. It's as if God the Father lifts his Son up and says, here is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. Look at him. Look at what he has done. He's gone up. The first step in the exaltation, as we heard in our third reading, which I always find moving from John's Gospel, do you? Was for Jesus to defeat death and to walk free from the tomb. 
historically, physically, really raised from the dead. Didn't you find that moving? Mary, you know, why are you crying? She had no need to cry for her gardener was actually her God. Don't hold on to me, Mary, because I, I'm returning to my father, Jesus says, and we're told he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And what is he given? It's not as if he's short on names, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of all of his names. Emmanuel, God with us, that's his name. El Shaddai, God Almighty, that's his name. The Son of Man, that's his name. The Light, that's his name. The Way, the Truth, the Life, that's his name. They're his names. The Alpha and the Omega, that's one of his names. He's not short on names. But now he is given the name which is above every other name. Literally in the Greek, he is super exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Welcome to Jesus' exaltation, his vindication. Welcome to Jesus' happiness. Thine be the glory, ever-conquering Son. You know, happiness is a funny old thing when you think about it. The more we pursue it, don't you find the more we chase it away? Chris Gardner, whose rags-to-riches life story was immortalized in Will Smith's film The Pursuit of Happiness. I wonder if you've seen it. Chris Gardner, whose life that film was about, said this, of Thomas Jefferson's very same phrase, the pursuit of happiness. He said, how did Thomas Jefferson know to put the pursuit part in there? How did he know that maybe happiness is something we can only ever pursue? Maybe we can never actually have it, no matter what. How did Jefferson know that? The 20th century American politician William Bennett writes famously, Happiness is like a cat. If you try to coax it or call it, it will avoid you. It will never come. But if you pay no attention to it and go about your own business, you'll find it rubbing up against your legs and jumping into your lap. You know, in other words, happiness is something that happens when we're looking for something or someone other than it. And there is a deep sense in which Jesus Christ did not come looking for exaltation or for happiness. Quite the opposite. Verse 6, he, he didn't seek his own advantage. Verse 7, he came as a servant, presumably to serve. And yet, verse 9, God exalted him. He was not a glory grabber. He was given glory. His pursuit was never one of happiness. It was one of service. 
But in the end, happiness was found in surprising places. His self-humbling, his willingness to be excluded for you and I proved to be the very doorways to glory for him. And just as I close, I want to speak to all of us personally from the end of that Philippians 2 passage. And I want to ask you, do you know that one day every knee will kneel before this same Lord Jesus Christ, including yours? Do you know that when he returns in glory, I will kneel before him? And so will Herod, and so will Pilate, and the mocking soldiers, so will everyone who's ever lived, and so will you. And it won't, I don't think, be a decision in that moment as such. It will be, if you'll excuse the pun, a sheer knee-jerk response. It will be instinct in that moment, for we shall see the one who has the name above every other name, and we shall fall to the ground and muddy our knees. So can I ask you, will you join me in muddying your knee before Jesus now, before he returns, as we've heard already to judge? I talk to a lot of people about this kind of stuff, and many people find Easter intellectually interesting, and it is. Many people find Easter inspiring, and it is. But above interesting, but above inspiring, Easter is an imperative. The risen Lord Jesus Christ is an imperative. And the imperative says this, bow before me. That's what Jesus' resurrection teaches us. Now I know that that makes us 21st century people flinch. It it makes me suspicious. If I was to hear a speaker saying what I'm saying, I would think I knew there was a catch in coming this evening, and here it is, and it's a bad one. But can I ask, why are we so scared of doing that? Now, for some of us, it may well be that we simply don't know enough. It's the first we've heard of this amazing story from Philippians 2, of Jesus Christ, of this historical story. Tim mentioned a couple of the courses we've got, Alpha, Big Questions, come on those. But for others of us, perhaps we do know enough. And all that is holding us back is the personal cost of bowing the knee to Christ. I don't know for you, but maybe we fear living for Jesus will be so humiliating Sometimes it is. What will living for him rather than me do to my self-esteem? Or perhaps we feel it would be dangerously excluding for us. What will the in crowd say, socially speaking? We'd be branded a religious nut at work, a wacko at home. I would be excluded by the in crowd. I couldn't possibly. Bowing down to Jesus makes me fear humiliation and exclusion. What about you? But let me ask, why would I be scared or suspicious of those things? 
for we've seen where they led the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't we? They led to his exaltation and to his happiness. And that is the promise of the gospel for us this Easter time, that following Jesus will mean exactly that. It will mean following him. Being humiliated with him, being excluded with him sometimes, but also on the last day being exalted with him in his perfect new creation of physical paradise. It's the Easter story. It's the story of happiness found in the most surprising of places. It's the pursuit of service and the finding of exaltation. I finish with the words we shall sing now. This Lord Jesus shall return again with his Father's glory over the earth to reign. For all wreaths of empire meet upon his brow and our hearts confess him, King of glory, now.